antipartum nursing care continuation. Today we will continue with the antipartum nursing continuation. Um, to, we'll look at specific conditions that occur in pregnancy. I mean those medical conditions that occur in pregnancy. There are several different medical conditions that occur in pregnancy. But I will look at uh, the five major ones, the five most commonly occurring ones that occur and that are put rates um, to both the fetal and the mother's lives when it comes to pregnancy. These are unexpected medical problems that occur when we conceive. Um, and it is important that we put in those mechanisms that will make us to detect them early or earlier than expected so we can put in the requisite uh, modality to prevent these unexpected medical conditions if they occur. Um, we'll talk about um, cervical insufficiency, hyperemesis gravidarum, anemia in pregnancy, gestational diabetes mellitus, and we'll talk about uh, gestational hypertension. For the first one, which is uh, cervical, cervical insufficiency or cervical insufficiency, it is when the cervix, which holds the baby in the uterus, dilates prematurely, leading to expulsion of the product of conception. What is in the uterus? When it when a when it is like a provoked through the premature opening of the cervix, which will allow what is implanted in the uterus to come out. That's what we call premature cervical dilatation, or we can call it cervical insufficiency. Um, this is a variable condition whereby the expulsion of what is in the uterus, which is called the product of conception comes out unexpectedly. Um, it is thought to be uh, linked to tissue changes and other alterations in the length of the cervix. Those are things that will lead to this problem. Um, we, when, when there is a cervical insufficiency, there are symptoms that might give rise to this cervical insufficiency. Those symptoms include, we're going to have, um, there will be increase in the pelvic pressure um, we'll have an urge to push and uh, there will be an urge to push and we can also have other physical findings that might come along with uh, this problem. We're going to have pink stain, vaginal discharge or bleeding. There will be discharges coming from the vagina that will be pink or that will be bloody. There are going to be possible gush of fluid and that possible gush of fluid, it is a sign of membrane rupturing. And when you see that in the anklets, it is, it, that simply means the membrane has We can also have uterine contractions with the expulsion of the fetus. So when uh, you have the pink stain, vaginal discharge or bleeding occurring, you have the possible gush of fluid coming up, which is a sign of rupture membranes. Then you're going to have uterine contractions Traction. These things will stimulate uterine contraction, then it will lead to cervical dilatation, which will expel the fetus from the uterus. Um, in this situation, we will have a post-operative clavish.
um, after the clevish, there will be a monitoring of the uterine contraction. We'll monitor rupture of the membranes and we'll look at signs of infection. Those are the assessment findings we want to put in place when we have these things occurring. Um, we can do our laboratory procedures, like we'll do an ultrasound. The ultrasound will show that uh, the cervix um, has gotten shorter, less than 25 millimeter in length. Any cervix that is less than 25 millimeter in length, meaning it has gotten shorter. And as the cervix gets shorter, um, there will be cervical dilatation because as the cervix dilates, it shortens as it dilates towards delivery or towards uh, expulsion of the fetus or what is in there as the product of conception. So, um, there are going to be some cervical funneling, there will be beaking or there will be effacement done that will indicate that there is a cervical, cervical insufficiency. There will be if, because um, normally during our normal birthing process, Effacement comes in when the cervix bottle open. Now, for in this case, it is being done prematurely, so we we'll have also the same process that occurs during delivery will occur during this period, but it is being done immaturely. That's what happened in the case of this uh, cervical insufficiency. Um, then we can also do the treatment. We can do. Uh, we can. We can. We give medication, but at this stage, our goal is to prevent the fetus from expulsion and that can be done by doing what we call prophylactic cervical circulation. The circus is just going in to reinforce the cervix surgically to suture or to, to, to ligate uh, the opening which will prevent the fetus from coming out prematurely. So that is definitely the goal of this procedure of this particular condition. When someone has cervical insufficiency, our goal becomes to um, prevent the fetus from coming out. So we go in and, and ligate the cervix. We're going to go in and literally like a, close the cervix or suture it or sew it. And let me just put it in the, in, in, in the layman term. We have to sew the sutures. Uh, the, I'm sorry, we have to sew the cervix. So we go in and sew the cervix, which will prevent the expulsion of the fetus. So that's what we call prophylactic cervical circulation. This can be done at early as 12 to um, at 12 to 12 to 14 weeks of gestation. Um, it can be removed after it can be done as early as 12 to 14 weeks of gestation. And if it is done by that time or later after that particular 12 to 14 weeks, it stays in until term pregnancy. If we cross 37 weeks of pregnancy, we are into full-term pregnancy. Any child deliver, any fetal deliver after 37 weeks of pregnancy, that fetal is regarded as term pregnancy or term fetus. Now, so in this situation, when we move above that 38 weeks period, um, we can also go in and remove the circling. So the circling can be removed even below 37 weeks at early as 36 weeks. Because sometimes we can have preterm labor, and that if, if there's a delivery of the fetus in preterm labor, the fetus can still survive. So we can, if we put in the surf, the the, the surplus between between uh, 12 to 14 weeks of gestation, we can go in and remove the sutures to open the cervix between uh, 36 
to 38 weeks and upward. So in short, when there is cervical insufficiency, the cervix dilates prematurely. One of the best solutions is to go in and do a ligation or to go in and do a suturing, which is called a circlage. So the circlage can occur as early as 12 to 14 weeks. And when we do the circlage, we can reopen the cervix to, to, to welcome or to accommodate normal labor process at 36 or 38 weeks and above. That's what happened in the case of cervical um, insufficiency. Now, we can also have, we also have to go in and evaluate the client support system. Um, we want to assess vaginal discharge. We want to monitor the client reports of pressure and contraction. We want to check the vital signs. We want to uh, provide medications, like uh, we have to give the tacolatus medication. Um, we have to understand what these medications are. We have to talk about the tacolitis, T-O-C-O-L-Y-T-I-C-S. These medications, uh, we talk about them when we did the pharmacology on an OBGYN. You want to go back and review all of the tacolitis and know what they are for, what are the contraindications. Um, we will give this medication. This medication that we are talking about, this tacolitis medication, this medication, they inhibits uterine contraction. When we are having premature contraction, when we administer this medication, it helps to inhibit contraction. It reduces the level of contraction that's going to be occurring because the more we have contraction, the faster our cervix will dilate and then we will be at risk of, ex uh, of, 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 of expelling the child or the fetus out of the uterus. That's what happened. So we would do health education and carry out and do discharge instruction. We'll place the patient on bare rest and we'll restrict their activity because the more you move around, you're gonna stimulate the, the uterus and they're gonna be uterine contraction. So you have to get on a full bare rest and we'll restrict your activities. We will also encourage hydration. When you drink more, the more hydrogen will become the better relaxed the, 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 uh, the uterus becomes. So we want to relax the uterus by encouraging fluids intake uh, and bare rest because when you are dehydrated, it stimulates uterine contraction. That's the rationale in there. So they got to get on bare rest. We have to restrict um, the activities. We have to increase fluid intake. Increasing fluid intake will prevent, uh, will, will prevent uterine contraction. These are just um, some of the rationale and some of the ideas you're going to have in there. They have to avoid sexual intercourse. Um, they got to avoid the use of tampons, douching, and we have to monitor cervical or uterine changes that might occur after the clevish. Uh, after the cerclage, I mean, the cerclage. is C-E-R-C-L-A-G, cerclage. So cervix is just the, the, the suture of the, of, of, of the cervix when there is a risk of fetal expulsion. Now, then uh, we will go in and remove um, the cervix at after 36 to 38 weeks or at 37 weeks, we remove the cervix. We have to provide information on health promotion and disease prevention. We want to um, talk about preterm labor, Talk about rupture of the membranes, which comes with infection. 
uh, we have to talk about there will be strong contraction and uh, we want to make sure that uh, these ideas, these education are taught to the, to, to the patient and the patient's family. When there's an urge to push, we have to be careful and know how we are pushing because once there has been some premature problem occurring, it becomes difficult for us to manage ongoing or long-lasting problems in, in here. Now, we have to do all these things to make sure that the patient is in a good condition to prevent, uh, to prevent um, re reoccurrence of this problem. Any question? Then let's look at number two medical condition that occurs in pregnancy. Um, we'll talk about hyperemesis gravidarum. Hyperemesis gravidarum is uh, when there is an excessive vomiting and nausea that will um, that is linked to increased HCG, the hormone HCG, the hemochorionic gonadotropins. So this is a hormone that causes us to have nausea and vomiting when we are pregnant, and that's why most of the time when people when, when we see young women throwing out having nausea. We think on pregnancy because the moment there is HCG within the system, after eight days, after eight days of, 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 of pregnancy, once you are pregnant, once there's conception, after eight days, we will have HCG appearing in our body. And once it starts to appear in the body, we're going to have nausea and vomiting. So the higher the level of HCG, the more nausea and vomiting we're going to experience. Now, we have what we call morning sickness, and we have what we call hyper-emesic gravidarum. They look the same. The difference between hyper-emesic gravidarum and morning sickness is, in morning sickness, it goes away with little management, eating little crackers, dry toast. When you eat those food, you wake up in the morning, so in the first three months of pregnancy, in the first trimester, you're going to have nausea and vomiting, and this is what we call morning sickness. But in the case of hyper-emesic gravidarum, there at least to, uh, it comes after 12 weeks of pregnancy, meaning after the first trimester, that's when we experience hyperemesic gravidarums. And in the hyperemesic gravidarums, we're going to experience it after 12 weeks. In the morning sickness, we experience it within the first trimester, which is the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. So, and then in hyperemesic gravidarum, we are going to have 5% weight loss. We're going to have um, possible um or uh, 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 imbalance we're going to have acetones in the urine and we'll have ketosis occurring in our or we'll have ketones in our in our urine so in hyperemesic gravidarums you're going to have five percent five percent weight loss you have uh, ketones in the urine you have acetone in the urine you will have um imbalance of our, of our electrolytes unlike in the case of morning sickness in morning sickness these things will not occur you will have nausea you might vomit one or two times within the period, but you're not going to have 5% weight loss. And it occurs in the first trimester, unlike the hyperemesic gravidarum that occurs after the first trimester of pregnancy. Um, so when this occurs, this hyperemesic gravidarum leads to intrauterine growth retardation. Um, there will be growth restriction in the uterus when we are having hyperemesic gravidarum. Um, so when this condition persists, it leads to other fetal, uh, fetal problems occurring in the uterus. So um, we're going to look at expected findings that come along with uh, hyperemesis gravidarums. 
This finding includes there will be a prolonged and excessive vomiting. There will be prolonged and excessive vomiting occurring. There will be dehydration with possible electrolytes imbalances. There will be 5% or more weight loss. There's going to be decreased blood pressure that will show a sign of dehydration. And there will be increased pulse rates, which will also show as a sign of dehydration. There will be poor skin turgor and there will be dry mucous membranes. All these are all signs and symptoms of dehydration. They're going to have this. Now, whenever we have these problems, we our mind runs our mind run to uh, doing some laboratory procedure that will help us to keep us going to know exactly what's the problem. We will do urinalysis. In the urinalysis, we will find ketones and acetones within our urine. Whenever there is dehydration, weight loss, it leads to the breakdown of fats and uh, proteins. And when, when fats and proteins are broken down, the end product of these breakdowns are what we what we're going to see as the ketones and acetones in our urine. So um, we'll have these things occurring. It is most important for us to initiate these laboratory tests and we're going to see elevated urine-specific gravity. When there is dehydration, our urine will become concentrated and we'll have increased urine-specific gravity with this condition. These are endless points we want to know to listen, we want to make sure we take these points down. They are very important in our struggle towards our ankle. Then we have to do the chemistry profile. In our chemistry profile, it will reveal to us that we are having electrolytes imbalances. Sodium, potassium, chloride will, will, will be reduced from their low intake. And then we're going to have metabolic acidosis. That is due to starving because when you are having hyperemesis diarrhea, you cannot put food in your mouth. And then food is placed in your mouth, it triggers vomiting, it triggers you to have nausea. So with that occurring, the pregnant woman will not want to eat. So she's gonna be starving. And as she starves, she's gonna have irregular imbalances, it will lead to arterial blood gases, fibrin, ABGs, which they're gonna have metabolic acidosis because the acid in the body will build up. There will be nothing to dilute the acid, so they're going to have increased acid, and they're going to still be in the process of losing electrolytes, which can also lead to imbalance in the ABGs. They're going to also have, they can have, in some cases, they can have metabolic alcoholism if they are vomiting, which will be due to, due, due to excessive vomiting. They can have metabolic alkalosis. They can also have elevated liver enzyme. All of those liver enzymes will be elevated. Elevated, um, they can have increased level of bilirubins, which will show that there will be decrease or there will be increased blood cells destruction, which will which we're going to have increased level of bilirubins. They can do the thyroid test. They will have hyperthyroidism in this condition. Do the CBC, the complete blood counts. Uh, there will be hematocrit concentration which is because of the body inability to retain fluids, which will result into what we call hemoconcentration. So when the body cannot retain fluids, our, our body will go into a process called hemoconcentration, where, there will be ink, uh, where there's going to be elevated hematocrit in the body, forced increase in the hematocrit. That's going to happen. And we want to measure the input and output. 
excess the skin turgor and mucus and, and, and mucus membrane, monitor vital signs, monitor weight, have the patient remain on NPO for at least 24 to 48 hours. These are things we do to make sure that these things are in place. We want to provide the patient with IV lateral ranges as form of hydration. We give them RL, ranger lactate fluids to hydrate them. We're going to also administer vitamin B6, which is called paradoxin. It helps to supplement uh, our diet. And we're going to also provide patients with uh, anti-emetic medication. We're getting Zofrim, Zofrim, metocopamide um, can also come in to control the nausea and vomiting. We can also treat them with corticosteroids, which can come in to facilitate the improvement uh, and also improve the level of the also improve the imbalances that have been caused by the hyperemesis of the diet. So we give them metoclopamide, we give them odansetron, or what we call zofrim, we can give them uh, corticosteroids to also help them. These are various things we can give when our patient is having hyperemesis gravidarum. Any question on hyperemesis gravidarum? Then we look at uh, the next one is iron deficiency anemia. Anemia in pregnancy. This mostly occurs when there is no 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 level of, when there is reduced level of ions in our body, which we refer to as iron deficiency anemia. It occurs in pregnancy. This is going to be a very short topic. Then we'll go to the two last ones that are very long and important um, for the anklets. So we're going to have, um, when you get pregnant, the level, the need for iron for our, of our body, both for the fetal and that of the maternal circulation, will increase. So that's why irons are very important when we get when we get pregnant, and the doctors are the doctors, the nurses, the male wives are, are the maternal the maternal nurses. They they always want us to increase our iron level when we go for our prenatal visit because this level this iron level they really help us to improve our blood level and our circulation that we have to share. With the baby or with the fetus. Now, in the case of uh, we cannot have sufficient of this iron from dietary, it then will lead to iron deficiency anemia. Um, we're going to be having fatigue and weakness, which are paramount signs and symptoms of iron deficiency anemia. We're going to have irritability. We'll have headache. We'll feel very dizzy. We'll have light headedness. We can have SOB, shortness of breath, we're going, to, we're going to have palpitation, we're going to have craving for unusual food, which we call pica, P-I-C-A. It's where you see somebody is pregnant and they are chewing the, the lid of a bottle, of a, of a mineral water bottle, or they are chewing dirt from the, from the earth. So they're going to pick out these things from the earth, put it in their mouth to chew on them because they are craving for it. So this craving of this unusual food is what we call the pica. The pica is the unusual food. So all of these things going to occur when we are having iron deficiency anemia. Um, they're going to also have pile of the skin. They will have brittle nails on physical assessment. They're going to have SOB. 
on physical assessment. These are things that are going to occur with the patient who is having iron deficiency anemia. If we do, if we did the laboratory test such as the hemoglobin or the hematocrit, the hematocrit will be less than 33.1%, which is very low for pregnancy. And um, the HGB will be less than 11 grams per deciliter in the first and third trimester. So anything less than 10.5 in the second trimester and less than uh, 11 in the first and third trimester is regarded as low level of ions, which requires prompt management and prompt intervention to prevent uh, transfusion or to, I'm sorry, to prevent uh, blood problems in the fetus and also in the mother. Um, we can give other medications to the patient. Um, we make sure the first thing is we want to increase that prenatal iron supplementation. The food, the dietary, dietary plays a major role in when it comes to uh, preventing iron deficiency anemia. We want to make sure they eat food that are high in uh, in ions, green, leafy vegetable food. Those things are important. They're going to be consuming about sixty to one hundred and twenty milligrams of of iron per day. Uh, they're going to increase food rich in iron, like legumes, fruits. Uh, and meat, like I talked talk about already, the green leafy vegetables, they're going to increase uh, their intake. I want to educate them about ways to minimize GI adverse effects. We'll talk, we'll talk to, uh, to them about it. And uh, we will also provide them with medication. If this does not, if, if, if this don't work, then we'll provide them with uh, medication. And the medication we want to provide them with one, we give them ferrous sulfate. Ferrous sulfate comes in PO only. So we give them ferrous sulfate. Um, this medication comes in PO. We take it by mouth only. And uh, we should take other, other supplements when we take this medication. Like we take vitamin C. Because vitamin C can increase its absorption. We should also increase our level of ions faster when it is taken along with vitamin C. Um, this medication, we also suggest to the client to increase fluid intake and, uh, because it can cause discomfort and constipation. They got to eat high-fiber diet when they, are on iron, when, they, when they are on ferrous sulfate or these iron supplements because they, uh, this medication can cause GI discomfort, which can also cause constipation. So they have to increase their fiber intake. And fluid intake to assist in discomfort. Um, we can administer iron dextrin. Iron dextrin is used in treatment of iron deficiency anemia. It comes only in parenteral uh, route. We cannot get it by PO. So the PO form of the ferrous sulfate is what we call the iron dextrin. So the PO form is the iron dextrin. We can look at the PO form. Oh, if the patient cannot take PO medication, we'll give them the iron dextrin as IM or through intravenous use. And this iron dextrin can be used, um, we use a Z-track meta to administer the iron dextrin. So just so you know about these things. Any question about these medications? We take a look at the next, the, we take a look at the third uh, disease condition. The third one is uh, what it is uh, gestational diabetes. No, the fourth one, I'm sorry. The fourth 
The fourth condition is gestational diabetes mellitus. Now, this is where I want us to pay more attention because there are questions under here that come a lot in the English. In gestational diabetes mellitus, it is an impairment in glucose tolerance with the first onset of recognition during pregnancy. So you've lived your life, you've never had diabetes in your whole life, but you got pregnant and you went to the hospital and we discovered that you have diabetes mellitus. This is what we call gestational diabetes mellitus. Um, the blood glucose level is between 70 to 110. Anything above or below is a problem. Now, in the case of diabetes mellitus in, in pregnancy, it is linked with type 2 diabetes diabetes and mostly those individuals who have diabetes mellitus in pregnancy or gestational diabetes mellitus, half of those individuals will come down with real diabetic illness during their lifetime. Um, when there is diabetes mellitus, uh, there can be an increased risk of spontaneous abortion. Remember, we're talking about spontaneous abortion, we're talking about bleeding occurring in the first trimester of pregnancy, we talk about gestation, we talk about uh, spontaneous abortion, we talk about diabetes as one of the causes that can provoke uh, spontaneous abortion when you are pregnant. Then we have infection. There can be vaginal or, or urinary tract infection. Yeast infection can be can occur with this condition. They can have hadrenians, which can cause over the system of the uterus. Hadrenia is a condition in which the uterus becomes distinguished overplus. It becomes very enlarged and it leads to premature rupture of the membranes. It leads to preterm labor and it also leads to hemorrhage. So when you have hadrenians, these are all other conditions that might come in. And hadrenia can be can come in when we are exposed to uh, gestational diabetes mellitus. We can also have uh, another condition that can come in, which is called keto ketoacidosis. Um, when there is diabetes in pregnancy, um, there will be increased insulin resistance in pregnancy. When, when we have this uh, ketoacidosis, it also leads to um, untreated hyperglycemia or inappropriate insulin dosing. It can lead to hypoglycemia caused by overdosing of the insulin, which can, we can skip or we can have late meals or increased exercise. We can also have hyperglycemia risk when we are having uh, gestational diabetes mellitus. These are all the risk conditions that we're going to have when we have gestational diabetes mellitus. Then we, we are going to have these findings. These symptoms will creep in when we have gestational diabetes mellitus. We're going to have hypoglycemia. We'll become nervous. In hypoglycemia, there'll be nervousness. There'll be headache. There'll be weakness. There'll be irritability. There'll be hunger, blurred vision, thinking of the mouth or extremely. These are all cardinal signs of hypoglycemia. So when we have hypoglycemia, we'll have these cardinal signs uh, which, will, uh, which will give us the idea that the idea that we are having hypoglycemia due to gestational diabetes mellitus. We can also have hyperglycemia. When we talk about the three P's, the polyphagia, polydipsia, and polyuria, these three P's are the three cardinal symptoms of hyperglycemia or diabetes. They're going to show up in the case of, a, of hyperglycemia. 
We can also have nausea, abdominal pains, we'll have flush, dry skin, we can have footed breath. All of these are all signs of hyperglycemia. On our assessment, we can see that the body will become shaky, we'll have clammy pale skin, we'll have shallow respirations, we'll have rapid pause, we can have hyperglycemia, we can have vomiting, we can have excessive weight gain during pregnancy. These are things that we're going to have when, when we are having, uh, when we are having uh, gestational diabetes mellitus. Now, my concern becomes um, the, the test we do to diagnose uh, this, this condition. Um, so the test we do, we'll do some routine laboratory tests to make sure that we are the patient is the patient the patient the patient is having this condition or the rule diabetes mellitus in pregnancy out during during this period. So we do a routine urinalysis, and in the urinalysis test we do there will be glucose urea, there will be glucose found within the urine. Then we then this will get to do what we call the glucola screening test. Now the glucola screening test. Is what we call the glucose tolerance test. It's also called glucola screening test. This we do two different tests that give us different results and that tell us what's happening. We can do the one hour glucose tolerance test, then we can do the three hours glucose tolerance test. I have talked about this many on many occasions. In a one hour glucose tolerance test, um, we will ingest 50 grams of oral glucose, it could be dextrose. Um, after that, we analyze the blood after one hour. So in one hour, we draw the blood and do the glucose test of the blood. Now, um, this can be performed at between 24 to 28 weeks of pregnancy. Let's remember this timing very much, very well for the ankles. For the one hour glucose tolerance test or the glucola test, um, it can be done at 24 to 28 weeks of pregnancy. Um, then the next thing is, after the test is done, we want to have a result between 70 to 110. Any result above that, any, any result that comes after 130, 130 to 140, that any blood level, blood sugar level that comes above 130 to 140, after this one hour Google test, it is regarded as positive and it means the patient has this condition. Then, when this test comes out, the next thing we do, we'll do additional result, ad, 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 additional testing. So, in after that, any result above 130 to 140 or greater, meaning the client has gestational diabetes mellitus, then that will require us to do the three hours glucose tolerance test. In the three hour glucose tolerance test, the client needs to be fasting, they got to avoid caffeine, they got to abstain from smoking, they have to um, this, this, this comes after the first one hour test. Now in the three hour test, the client is required to be fasting. The client goes to the clinic fasting and they will ingest 100 grams. In the first test, in the first one hour test, they ingested 50 grams of glucose. In the, in, in the three hour test, they will ingest 100 grams of glucose fluid or solution. Um, and then we'll do the serum glucose level in the first one hour, second one, second two hours, in the third hour, or in the third hour. Now we'll do a one, two, and three hours. 
if we do this test with after the ingestion of the 100 gram, if two of these tests came back out with a blood glucose higher than 140, meaning the client is positive of gestational diabetes mellitus. If it less than two test results that came out positive, then the client does not have this condition. After, 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 after this test, the client can go and do the HbA1c to get an overview of the entire uh, the level at which the body has been using insulin to lower blood sugar. The HbOC tells us that. There will, be, there will be ketones in the urine when there is severity of, 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 of this condition. There will be ketones in the urine. Then we go ahead and do other diagnostic procedures. We do the biophysical profile to ascertain whether the fetus is in good shape or in good condition. We can do the amino synthesis to look at the alpha fetoprotein level. We can do the non-stress test to also assess the fetal well-being. These are tests we do after the client is diagnosed of diabetes mellitus. We can also give medication. Um, we will give the patient will take um, oral hypoglycemic agents. Um, like um, we we'll give these medications. Now, most of these oral hypoglycemic agents cannot work during pregnancy because they are contraindicated in pregnancy. So if the client cannot lower their blood sugar through exercise or diet or other means, then it means we have to give insulin in this condition. So like glabride, glabride does not really work in this condition in pregnancy. It is contraindicated in pregnancy. Then we'll look at, um, we'll go ahead and look at uh, Insulin and we first of all try to give metformin. If metformin, if metformin does not work, then we'll give the glabra. Uh, sorry, we'll give the we'll give the insulin. Any question? Then we look at the last condition, which is um, gestational hypertension. Now, in this condition, um, the client will have gestational hypertension. Um, when the blood level, the blood pressure level, the BP is above 140 or 90 on two different occasions, uh, taken four hours apart. So we did your BP at during pregnancy on two different occasions with four hours in between and it still came back as 140 or 90 or above, meaning you are having gestational hypertension and, you, you, and there is also no incident of protein urea. So if there's no protein in the urine and you are having BP of 140 or 90 uh, on two different occasions with four hours interval, you are having gestational hypertension. And this can occur mostly after the 20th weeks of pregnancy. Then we have the mild preeclampsia. After gestational hypertension, if we do not manage gestational hypertension, we run into mild preeclampsia. In the mild preeclampsia, we're going to have gestational hypertension with protein urea, meaning the client will have a BP of 140 or, or 90 and above, um, and they will have pre, uh, they will have protein urea. So protein urea plus the high BP of 140 or 90 can diagnose mild preeclampsia. Now, if this occur, the client will have transient headaches that might occur with different episodes of irritability, and they will have edema during this period of the of the lower extremity now if we do not manage the mild preeclampsia 
then we run into the third condition called severe preeclampsia. In severe preeclampsia, the client will have a BP of 160 over 110 and above, plus protein urea that will be 3 plus and above. So they will have 3 plus protein urea in the urine. They will have 160 over 110 or higher BP. And they're going to have cerebral and visual disturbances. They're going to have increased creatinine above that will be above 1.1. And they're going to have hyperreflexia that will have possible ankle clonus. They will have cardiac involvement and they will have extensive peripheral edema of the lower extremity. They will have some of liver dysfunctions coming in. And they're going to also have epigastric and red upper quadrant pains. And they can have tremble cytopenia. These are all the findings that come, that come with a severe preeclampsia. Now, if this is not also managed, then we run into the next stage. The next stage becomes eclampsia, which we do not want to have in pregnancy. When, when, we, when we do not manage severe preeclampsia, we run into eclampsia. Now, in eclampsia, we'll have all the symptoms of severe preeclampsia. We'll have the hyperreflexia, hyper we'll have the liver dysfunction, we'll have the cardiac involvement, we'll have the epigastric pains, we'll have the BP above 160 or 110. We'll have all these symptoms of severe preeclampsia plus seizure or coma in eclampsia. So eclampsia is where we are having the symptoms of pre, uh, the symptoms from severe preeclampsia plus coma or seizure occurring in there. So once we are having seizure, we are having the protein urea, we have all the other symptoms, definitely we are not anymore in severe preeclampsia, we are now at eclampsia. And this is very, very generous. In this condition, eclampsia is always preceded by headache. The patient will have headache, they will have this severe burning in the epigastric area, they will have hyperreflexia, and they will have hemoconcentration. These are cardinal signs of eclampsia. So these signs that I'm talking about, the severe epigastric pains, the headache, the hyperreflexia, these are possible warning signs of convulsion. In any moment, patient will begin to have convulsion. Then that is what's happening. Now, patient can also have HELP syndrome, H-E-L-L-P, HELP syndrome. HELP syndrome is when it is the variant form of gestational hypertension in which there are other hematological conditions, other hematological conditions that are coming up after these things have happened. So in this HELP syndrome, they will have severe preeclampsia involving, there will be liver dysfunction, and will, this will be diagnosed through laboratory testing. It's called HELP, H-E-L-P, because these are the symptoms that are going to come together to form the HELP syndrome. One, they will have anemia and jaundice after there will be the treatment of the rare blood cell, which we call hemolysis, H-E-M-O-L-Y-S-I-S. Hemolysis will occur, which is the, which is the H in the HELP syndrome. They're going to have the E and the L is elevated liver enzyme. So they'll have elevated liver enzyme in here, um, which will result into increase in ALT, the AST, and other epigastric pains, nausea, and vomiting. The ALT, the AST, these are liver enzymes that will be increased in the case of this HELP syndrome. And they're going to have the LP stand for low platelets. 
they're going to have low platelet that will be less than 100,000, resulting in thrombocytopenia. They will have bleeding problem. They will have clotting problem. They will have bleeding gums. They will have possible DIC, dissimilated intravascular coagulopathy. They're going to have this condition from the HELP syndrome. So in HELP syndrome, H-E-L-L-P simply means the H stands for hemolysis, which means there is red blood cell destruction in the body, which will all, then the E-L stands for elevated liver enzyme, the A-L-T, the A-S will be elevated, and the L-P stands for low platelet, which they're going to have clotting problem and tremble to the pinion. So they're going to have help, they're going to be having help syndrome, H-E-L-L-P. Hemolysis, elevated liver enzyme, low platelets. So the H stands for hemolysis, the E stands for elevated, the first L stands for liver um, enzyme, and the second L stands for low, the P stands for platelets. So they will have hemolysis, elevated low, elevated liver enzyme, low platelets. That's what they're going to have in the HELP syndrome. Any question on this problem in here? So we have to go ahead and provide them medications and other uh, look at their symptoms. They will have this symptom coming in, blurred vision. They will have flashes of light or dots before their eyes. They will have the smaller bubbles of dots in their eyes when they are having these problems. And we do laboratory tests. There will be elevated liver enzyme, the LDH, the AST, the ALT will all be elevated. There will be increased creatinine. There will be increased plasma uric acid. There will be thrombocytopenia. There will be decreased hemoglobin. There will be hyperbilirubinemia. Um, we can give them medications, which will include we give them anti hypertension medication. We give them metadopa. We give them the nafilipines. We give them the hydralazine. And they can also take labitalol. We, can all, we want to avoid the AC inhibitors and the angiotensin 2 receptor blockers in this condition. And for the conversion, in many cases, we give them magnesium sulfate, which is an anti-conversion for provided treatment in the case of uh, the pre-eclampsia to prevent eclampsia or to prevent the, the, the seizure occurring. Um, this drug is, is, is an infusion medication. We have to maintain and reg regulate the flow rate because it's also dangerous. Uh, we have to monitor for signs of magnesium sulfate toxic toxicity which include they're going to have absence of the patellar deep tendon reflexes. They're going to have low urine output, less than 30 ml per hour. They're going to have respiratory breathing will be less than 12 beats per minute, breath per minute. They will have decreased consciousness. They can have cardiac dysrhythmia. So this can happen. Um, when we are, whenever we are, whenever we are administering magnesium sulfate, we must have the antidote by us. That is what we call the calcium gluconate or calcium chloride. Calcium chloride or calcium gluconate is an antidote for magnesium sulfate, which you always have with us. Any question? So we're going to stop here for the day, and uh, I hope we can review this thing in our students' book and online through these audios. We can review them and make sure we know what we're, what we're talking about. Thank you very much, and have a pleasant day.